Welcome to this episode of Into the Wilderness Shorts, supported by Modern Huntsman, bringing you a dose of science in the complex world of conservation. My apologies for the late release. I was traveling home to Scotland from the US after being away for a while, and it took a bit of time to recover from jet lag. I'm not quite there yet, but almost. Uh, And I'm at my desk, and I've got this show out to you. What it does mean is that you only have to wait a few days now until the normal Into the Wilderness release with our long-form conversation, which this week is going to be with filmmaker Ryan Youngblood. It's a truly brilliant show, so do not miss that on Thursday. In this show, I'm joined by Daniel Skerritt, a postdoctoral research fellow at the Fisheries Economics Unit at the University of British Columbia. I came across some of his work through an article in theconversation.com titled What Lives, What Dies? The Role of Science in the Decision to Cull Seals to Save Cod. Exactly the kind of thing that floats my boat and the kind of conversations I like to have. The article is linked in the description to this show and begins by highlighting the collapse of the Grand Banks fishery in Canada, which Daniel suggests is one of the most significant failures in the history of resource management. He goes on to pose a number of fascinating questions about the role of science in decision-making and explores how we value resources as a society. So we're going to jump straight into the show. Thanks very much for joining me for the fourth installment of this Into the Wilderness Shorts. Here is Daniel Skerritt. Um, so the Fisheries Economics Research Unit, we normally abbreviate it to FERU. Um, yeah, my role in there, I'm a postdoctoral research fellow. So I've been with, um, with that unit for about 18 months. And I kind of do research on various aspects of fisheries. So we largely focus on the economics, but as a group, we kind of have economists, biologists, social scientists, and so my role is kind of kind of moving between those different kind of research backgrounds, investigating quite large issues with global fisheries. So a lot of my work is on fishery subsidies, the kind of the government support to, you know, marine wild capture fisheries that kind of sometimes can cause harm by kind of propping them up artificially, allowing them to continue fishing despite dwindling uh, resources. So a lot of my time spent researching fisheries subsidies, but we also look into, uh, you know, aspects of kind of access to fish for different kind of stakeholder groups. Um, I'm also looking at how we can kind of translate the the knowledge of, of different stakeholder groups. So whether that's indigenous First Nations or industrial fishing uh, groups, how we can kind of translate their knowledge into our kind of scientific stock assessments to try and make those, you know, reflect better what they see on the water. So we're quite a diverse research group, really. When most people think of research groups involved in conservation, they think of biologists, they think of ecologists. Economists wouldn't be uh, a discipline that is at the forefront of most people's minds. Why is it important that economists are involved in these kinds of initiatives and um, conservation planning? Yeah, I guess... I see your point with um, with that. Um, I, I suppose the difference might be is you kind of need to understand the, the background of kind of fisheries. So 
marine capture fisheries that they're, they're, they're managed in quite a different way to almost all other kind of forms of either food production or conservation or wildlife management even kind of the language that we use is very different so you know we talk about fish stocks rather than fish populations you know we we, we kind of manage them as these these units we wait we, you know we, we 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 estimate their size in tons rather than individuals and so kind of it's it's really focused fisheries usually on 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 that aspect this kind of a resource that's that's producing a food source and so it's often kind of managed in terms of economic output um food security you know employment rather than kind of treated as you know a kind of wild animal and um, you know that's changing a lot in over the years that's kind of it's less focused now on economics and there's also a lot of aspects in terms of the social well-being of fishers being considered in the management but i would say kind of the economics of fisheries is is vital because it's also how we talk to each other between the kind of different countries a lot of fish stocks are kind of transboundary you know so the uk may catch the same fish as france or or ireland and so there needs to be this kind of currency that we can talk about this shared resource and so inevitably you know economics gets that gets pulled into that i think most of us will be well aware of the ever increasing demand on resources in our oceans from overexploitation to the impacts of climate change barely a week goes by without hearing of our detrimental impacts on marine systems i was interested to understand what we currently know about fish stock declines 1990 around there was kind of the peak for uh, the global catch of, of, of wild marine fish. And ever since then, it's been reducing year on year how much we catch. We've kind of been artificially propping that figure up over the years by moving our interests onto other species that aren't were, were less desirable 50 years ago or you know, chasing these fish further offshore into deeper waters, using new technologies so we can catch these fish easier. So really, a lot of our work in terms of understanding the kind of sustainability of these fish stocks it's also understanding kind of how we actually catch them because that's changed so much over time and so a lot of kind of fisheries management is actually trying to really figure out what this what the status of that stock is there's so little data for most of these fish stocks that data is really difficult and complex to use so a lot of kind of our work in terms of the cons- conserving these fish stocks or rebuilding them is actually in terms of kind of trying to understand them better in terms of the data we have or more data that we need to go out and collect. Of course, the big question is, how do we reverse negative trends to ensure we have a sustainable take in our fisheries? Usually fish stocks are kind of overfished. It's, it's quite simple, really. We catch more fish than are, recru- than, than are created every year. So in terms of like the growth of the fish or, or the reproduction of the fish. So quite simply, fish stocks reduce because we catch more than is replenished. And so, again, kind of our role in that is to really highlight and try and bring into to the foreground kind of what the levels of, of catch should be. Um, our group has done quite a lot of work in terms of revealing some of this hidden catch as well. So there's um, something in fisheries science we always call IUU, which is illegal, unreported and unregulated kind of fishing. And they're kind of, that's catch of a fish that is just hidden from us totally. It's never recorded. We don't see it. And so a lot of our, a lot of our work and kind of historically has been trying to reveal that so we can have 
a better understanding of actually what is being taken from these stocks. So our, our group spent a lot of time doing that for um, all the all the fisheries across the world. These kind of huge global assessments of of, of, of the missing fish that are, that are taken from the sea. And so we're kind of hoping that by shining a light on kind of these nuances in the data, we can get more accurate management of those fish stocks to try and help rebuild them. But I mean, fundamentally, we just need to start taking less fish. <laughs> That's intriguing. How, how on earth do you go about working out what you don't know? Yeah, that's that's a good question. There's there's loads of different ways to do it, really. I mean, one of the ways, one of the simplest ways is instead of taking the data that governments or other organisations might collect of what fish are landed, we can start looking at what fish is kind of traded or what fish is sold. Um, you know, there's some f- funny examples where you'll find certain island states or whatever which will re- report you know, X tons of tuna caught every year, but will export, you know, a figure higher than that. So there's kind of like little little workarounds that we can do like that, looking for kind of ways that can help improve an estimate for a region. Um, some of these uh, countries or fisheries, we can kind of do research to find out this aspect of IEU fishing, how much of it exists. And then we can kind of extrapolate that onto other countries a lot of our work is kind of doing that is being quite brave and saying well we have some data for some of these fisheries and then we start building kind of models to try and fill in the missing the missing figures if you are as a as a as a government um or a a conservation body who's advising fish stock take if you're unaware of what's actually coming out it makes it very difficult to manage a population yeah exactly and and that's the, the most fundamental piece of data that we kind of need is how much how much fish is is taken from that fish stock, whether that's kind of actually landed at sea or you, you've probably heard about the issues of discards that, that was kind of going around Europe about three or four years ago. You know, we still need to like know. like bycatch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's fish that might be caught from, from a stock that's either not the right species, that we, we don't want that species. They're too small, so they can't legally be sold. You know, or, or maybe they're too damaged, so can't be sold again. And so this this fish was usually kind of thrown back overboard um, and kind of forgotten about. And so, um, you know, the, again, these are really important parts of the of, of the kind of fishery that we need to understand. This was one of the big issues, actually, on a, another fishery I work with um, in on the uh, east coast of Canada, the redfish fishery. And for years, the kind of stocks, the stock scientists were saying, like, you can take this amount of fish. And but every year on year the stock kept kept decreasing and they couldn't work out why until they spoke to the fishermen and the fishermen explained, well, yeah, undersized fish we, we're throwing overboard. And there was this kind of disconnect between the scientists and the fishers to to understand that. Once they started rebuilding these models, taking into account that kind of that missing fish, you know, suddenly it was revealed that this fish stock was really unsustainable, well overfished, and and the fishery was shut down. Uh, for about 10 years. I mean, it's, they're, they're now starting to see a, 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 the fish stock rebuilding. So they may start kind of increasing the amount of fish that we can take from that stock. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about, which you highlighted uh, in the article that I referenced, is this uh, potential clash in interests where you have maybe a, a population that has declined, which very often is at the hands of humans, which as we're trying to help it rebound, 
it is now being negatively affected by a population of another species that predates on it, which is doing very well. And the, the example you gave in, in that article was the predation of um, cod stocks by seals. And this idea that we have to try and work out what the value of one species is over another. How does science help evaluate that? And, and what are the complexities of it? Because it's not just a, it's not just a, a numbers game. There's also um, a, a moral aspect to it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so in the article, I kind of argued about these, there's kind of two roles that science can or, or maybe should play in kind of determining uh, the value of a species or, or maybe the kind of right course of action. So the first one, quite simply, science can can kind of determine, you know, if, say, we wanted to cull seals or remove seals in order to help the, the, the cod, science can build these models and say, okay, if we remove 65% of the seals, which is the um, example that you gave of the Southern Gulf of St. Lawrence, then that might see a positive effect on the cod stock. So we can kind of do these um, ecosystem models, build these models and determine, you know, if we do X, the result might be Y. So that's quite simply the role, uh, uh, you know, the first role of science is providing the kind of data, the, the evidence behind particular decisions. Uh, the, other, the other role that kind of science can play is, is helping to decide which option we should take. This is where, for me anyway, at least, it gets a bit um, fuzzy on, on on what should the role of science be. There's quite a lot of debate on whether science should play a you know significant role in these moral decisions, or whether they should kind of whether it should sit back and allow society or or you know uh, the public to decide on on the right option. But one of the things we can do, which is what again our, our research unit has done over time, is we can kind of help to assign value to certain species. Uh, to say, you know, if we allow the the cod stock to recover, you know, um, that could increase revenue in that in that in that community or in that region by you know a certain amount of dollars or whatever. You know, we can also look at how many jobs that might um, lead to. Uh, also, the kind of costs and the benefits of the actual culling of the seal. You know, in Canada, that seal is often an actual resource it's not simply culling it's kind of harvesting as well so we can kind of build all these these models and give examples of the costs and the benefits of each decision for me it becomes really difficult is when it's we're not talking about economic uh, costs or values but when we're talking about those the value of those animals to us as people right so those seal although you may be able to get a certain number of dollars per seal if, if you if you if you harvested it you know, it, it becomes a different question when you talk about what value does that have to people walking along the coast and seeing that seal, you know, in its in its in its wild state. And as I kind of said at the beginning, this is a bit where fishery science is, is quite new for fishery science. The language has often been about resource use, about kind of, as I say, harvesting rather than those those values of those of those animals as as wild animals to society. Yeah, because there is there is a certain um, sort of public good element to these species existing in an environment that everybody can can enjoy them that is very difficult to put a value on. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you know, there's there's so many different values to that an animal can have, whether that's to tourism, whether that's actually as a 
as a resource for being har- for harvesting, and and just also like <laughs> the value for that that animal to exist, like it, it's right to exist as an as an individual animal, right? You know, we we see this so much now in farming, for example. You know, we've changed our approach to farming considerably over the last 20, 30 years. You know, we we really consider the kind of the 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 um, the environment that they're kept in, kind of the the method of slaughter of those animals. We, we you know we're even doing that in aquaculture now. There's quite a lot of work in Europe about how the fish are kind of transported between pens. Again, the kind of you know um, the slaughter of those fish, whether it's done humanely. But again, I, I feel as though fishery science is sometimes and marine science, maybe in general, is sometimes a bit behind that. We don't we don't often consider the kind of humanity of of, of these of these methods. But I think I think that will probably change as as we move forward, as as we kind of consider. Well, if we're doing it in aquaculture, surely we need to start considering that in in fisheries and the impact that fisheries have on the ecosystem. Yeah, I think that this uh, sort of cost benefit type analysis and this this trade off of, of value uh, between species is a is a really interesting thing to explore in people's minds, and I think that. We're going to see this more and more, whether that be in our oceans or indeed on land, as we are rapidly um, becoming aware of the impacts that humans have made over time and continue to do so. I mean, there, there's an element of it which is um, which puts it on our kind of our shoulders to fix some of the damage that we've done. And sometimes that might involve making uncomfortable decisions, like we're just taking the example that we were talking about there, where there's this trade-off potentially between culling some some number of seals of a certain population to help a certain fish stock stock recover. Uh, There might be a large number of people who don't like the idea of seals being culled, but what is the greater good to society and how far how far do you look beyond that sort of local area what is the value of that on a sort of global platform it's a very uh complicated thing to value yeah definitely and i think as well as when we talk about kind of further intervention you know we created this kind of perturbed environment it's our impact you know is it our role therefore to put it back um and i think one of the important aspects about about this when we talk about further intervention to kind of right the wrongs maybe is is kind of is, is having an understanding of actually what we're going back to or, or or what we're going forward to because some of these ecosystems are, are so altered that there isn't always a, a direct route back to what you know what they used to be particularly when you think the southern gulf of st lawrence uh, the kind of that area of, of of the ocean is warming quicker than I think any other part of the ocean, certainly the ninety percent of the ocean. This this area off the east coast of Canada and, and America is is warming at a rapid rate. And so, even if we try and start, you know, altering the numbers of predators or prey to try and get back to what we think is a kind of pristine environment, it's likely we'll never be able to achieve that because, you know, the water that the fish swim in is is, is different. So it can't hold as many. Uh, cod in that area because maybe productivity has changed or perhaps another animal you know lobsters or something is 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 
is is more abundant because of this changing environment. And so this is something that we're seeing more and more is like the idea that conservation isn't necessarily kind of trying to go back to a pristine or, or, or reinstate something that was lost, but rather in fishery science, at least we kind of talk about trying to reinstate um, functioning ecosystems. So an ecosystem that has, you know, the right species in the right positions that are are performing a role or that is kind of functioning in the sense that it is providing resources for, for us as humans and is, you know, also supporting different life forms in that ecosystem. I think that's the kind of really interesting thing that, that we all have to kind of conservationists, scientists, fishers alike all have to kind of recognize and, and somehow come up with an agreed kind of map of, of what we want it to look like. Yeah, I think there's very often a feeling amongst your average person on the street that conservation is um, something that we try and achieve a static balance with. But really, ecosystems are in constant flux and dynamic change. And as humans, we have this, we very often have this desire to keep things in a very sort of neat box that we understand this is what's there and this is what's there in sort of perpetuity. And we don't like this idea of change. And I think we've been somewhat conditioned to that as a result of the colossal damage that we've done as humans, particularly in our oceans, as as is coming to light almost on on a weekly basis. So we've seen all of these mass declines of species around the world. And so we've become conditioned to this idea that all declines are bad because we've caused them. And, And so it's in our mind that change is bad. But sometimes change is is necessary, or we need to accept that change is is something that we can't control, or, or it's part of the the natural flow. Although, as as we all understand, there's a, a whole host of uh, anthropogenic um, changes that wouldn't have happened if we hadn't um, been burning fossil fuels or um, encroached on certain ecosystems on land or or in water these ecosystems are, are they're constantly in, in flux and you know we sometimes see it in in some of these kind of where there's a fishery involved as well where once we fished a, a particular stock out you know the the role or the function that that species used to play could be is, is sometimes replaced by a different species and so then suddenly like you know so for example i think in the north sea this might have happened with with herring and sprat where um you know, we fished down cod at one point, I think. Herring populations, you know, boom, because predation was lower. So then we turned our attention to the herring and really fished those really hard. And again, that reduced down. And so suddenly that, and but there was still all this food that these herring were kind of feeding on previously. And so something normally steps in and, and, and takes over that role or, or makes the most of that kind of food source that has been, you know, vacated by, by the huge herring shoals. And I think in the North Sea, that's what happened with Sprats kind of taking this role on. Um, so, yeah, like th- that's it. Like we can't always go back to how it used to be or what we read about in kind of historical books. And it's being aware of that. But it's also being aware of how our kind of ex- what our, how expect- our expectations have changed over time. Um, a colleague of mine kind of termed this phrase, which is shifting baselines. 
which he Daniel Pauli, which which he kind of uses to explain this phenomenon of every every generation of fishery scientists kind of as they get towards the middle or end of their career look back at the beginning of their career and say you know the stocks used to be much bigger when I was a young fishery scientist and so that's their kind of new baseline but you talk to kind of previous generations and their kind of baseline of you know of when they first started is different again and so every kind of new generation we have of fishery scientists suddenly has a a new kind of baseline that they that they look towards of of where we've kind of have moved on from. And so it's understanding that these ecosystems have changed, but also kind of our, our expectations of what, you know, a, a recovered ecosystem or recovered stock, you know, what how our expectations have changed as well over time. Very often we talk about these grand concepts of conservation and they can feel quite removed to this, the consumer of the output I mean, if we look at our oceans, it's one of the last sort of wild stocks that we actually harvest on on an industrial scale. As a consumer, what should we be considering if we are also concerned about the conservation of all the fish stocks in our oceans? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, it's it's a really difficult one because, you know, there's a lot of effort put into trying to conserve the, the oceans, which you know, we've, we've kind of got to do, they're so vital, but it is always going to be a kind of a larder for humanity, right? It's 70% of the world is, is the ocean. So we need to ensure that it's sustainable so that it can kind of sustain, you know, our growing population. So there's a, there's a kind of, there's a balance between ensuring it's sustainable use and conserving aspects of it that, you know, maybe we don't have a use for or, or elements where we don't go fishing at all to conserve those, to let those kind of thrive. And so at the moment, there's a lot of effort to try and, you know, um, reduce fishing in the high seas. This is a big aspect of sustainability for oceans because there's no kind of rules out there. There, You know, there's no kind of really clear governing body. So we're trying to reduce kind of fishing in the high seas. Another key element of conservation is trying to get um, – 30% of the world's oceans kind of in these marine protected areas, areas that we just set aside almost like we do in agriculture for them to replenish. Um, But, you know, I spend all my days and I've been doing this for over 10 years working in the field of fishery science. And it's confusing even for me to know what is a sustainable option because I still want to eat fish, right? You know, Fisheries can be sustainable one year and suddenly next year they lose a certification of sustainability. You know, it's, it's, it's not straightforward for the consumer. Um, I think this is where certification schemes do come in. They're a really good kind of um, tool for consumers to use to kind of have it spelt out quite simply. You know, in the UK, the MSC is one of the leading kind of uh, certification schemes. Does it have a blue tick on it? Does it not? You know, it's a really kind of simplistic but useful tool for for um, consumers to see, like, is this is this fish kind of sustainable? I would say it's not necessarily the kind of only arbiter of sustainability. You know, um, there are fish stocks that won't have that blue tick that are actually sustainable, that have just not gone through the process. But it's kind of a good starting point if, you know, if, if, if people don't want to have to research whether they can buy a particular fillet, fillet of haddock you know, before they actually purchase it at the supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Much of what we read and sort of, well, certainly the stuff that comes across my social media feeds and my Twitter feed, when, which I basically use as a news feed, is very uh, pessimistic and much of it's doom and gloom when it comes to our, our ocean stocks. Is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Is there a reason to be optimistic? And, and what is that? Yeah, I think there's always reasons to be optimistic, right? We we do, although, you know, we've as humanities, we've kind of made mistakes over the years. We do often are able to kind of solve them. And so I'm always trying try to be optimistic. Um, there was a paper published this year, actually, by uh, Ray Hilborn and a number of his colleagues that's kind of shown that actually some of these fish stocks or a lot of these fish stocks, when we have really kind of tight management, really good scientific um, models of their of their populations driven by good quality data, when we have those things in place, we can actually fish them and rebuild these depleted stocks and then fish them sustainably. You know, so there is some good news stories out there. I, you know, we also need to consider, I think, going forward, ways that we can manage them without this kind of data-rich kind of highly, uh, you know, managed fisheries because, you know, a lot of the world don't have the capacity to be able to do that kind of management. And so there's also a lot of work going on now to try and manage fisheries that we call kind of data limited fisheries, you know, manage them in different ways. But definitely, I think there is room for optimism. You know, we've got at the end of sometime this year, we're kind of trying to hit the targets for the United Nations Sustainability Development Goals. You know, they have quite clear targets of what we can do in the marine um, environment in order to try and make it more sustainable. And so these kind of Global solutions are the way forward, I feel. Um, as I say, a lot of our work now is looking in the kind of a holistic view of fisheries across the world and the fact that, you know, we only have one ocean, although it's divided up into these different regions that are managed by different organisations or countries. Ultimately, I think to have a really sustainable ocean, we need to have these kind of collective goals that we all work towards, you know, rather than kind of trying to manage them independently. Dan, thanks very much for taking the time to give us this uh, a, a brief global overview of uh, marine conservation. I think there's a lot of food for thought there for for many people, and uh, it's it's a topic that has so many facets to it. We'll definitely be digging into it again. But um, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Byron. No, it was great talking to you. Well, that's it for this week's Into the Wilderness Shorts. Join me in a few days' time after this podcast goes out for our long-form interview with Ryan Youngblood.